0: Welcome to Two Guys Survival conversation on theology, culture, and God's word. My name is Eric Leupold, and I'm joined as always with Dylan Kennison. Good morning, Dylan. How are you? Good morning, Eric.
1: I'm doing well, brother. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Doing great this excellent uh, fine morning, nice early morning here. Um, thank you all for joining us as well, and uh, we hope that uh, you are enjoying our second season of our podcast. Uh, last last time we we spoke. We addressed a uh, rather important topic of socialism uh, and the relationship uh, between the uh, the people who who produce wealth and the government as well as the poor. Um, and so today, kind of along those same lines, we want to take a look at the I guess you could say the the opposite perspective or uh... what was considered to be the opposite perspective and that is capitalism uh... so and uh, and dylan will be uh... leading us uh... more in this discussion today and i'm gonna have to start peppering peppering him with questions so hopefully hopefully you're ready dylan
1: only softballs Eric. <coughs> yeah i'll try to make it an easy One, you to make it easy only the easy ones yes
0: <laughs> but you know just like we did last time we want to make sure we do a good job of providing definitions uh, diving uh, deep into the text of Scripture and seeing what uh, what God says about wealth, about money, about capitalism uh, and, and understanding what that is. Is it good? Is it not good? Uh, what things we should avoid? What things we should embrace? And so hopefully uh, we'll uh, touch on all of those aspects uh, this morning for you. Um, so I guess kind of starting us off um Let's uh, lay down some foundations of definitions. I mean, what when we talk about capitalism, Dylan, what what does that word mean? What should we should what should come to our minds when we hear that word?
1: It obviously means greed and self interest and profit motive <clears throat> No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so so I so I looked up a few definitions in, in preparation for today and to be honest with you, I didn't really love any of them. <laughs> oh no. So well what I kinda ended up doing was this here's a definition. That is kind of eclectic, right? I'm borrowing some elements from a handful of different definitions, um, but here's at least an opening shot. So, capitalism is is that economic system by which number one, capital goods are privately owned. Number two, production and pricing of goods and services are based on supply and demand in a free market. And number three, scarce resources are purposefully allocated. So there's, I mean, there's an opening shot. And to be honest, I'm still not, again, I'm not totally satisfied with that definition yet. Um, but I think it's enough to, to get us started. Um, I think, you know, moving beyond the definition for a second, I think it's helpful. It may be helpful to lay some groundwork for economics generally. And then Mm -hmm. I'd like to kind of lay out some principles that should, I think, undergird these kinds of discussions. Um, so, groundworks for economics generally, uh, I mean, I think we can start in Genesis 1, uh, verses 27 to 28 and, right. and 2.15. Um, so, here we, we see basically, you know, God created man as man as, in his image, and in, in, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. He said, be fruitful multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens. Uh, ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Mm-hmm. So, here, what we're seeing in both of these sections is that God ordains work. <clears throat> God creates everything. He owns everything. And he enlists human beings as vice regents. So, I mean, one of the implications of that is work is not a function of the fall, right? There's work before the fall. There will be work in heaven, we see in Luke mm-hmm. 19. So work is God-ordained. It's, it's a God-gifted blessing to humanity. Um, but then we, we get the fall in uh, Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we have the very first uh, curse that's pronounced. Yeah. And here, the the first curse pronounced by God is is on the ground. Now, for the sake of our discussion, that's not a small point, because the earth will no longer easily yield its fruit, right? So pre-fall, Adam and Eve could have their needs and wants met with limited work. But now it'll be toil, right? You get this special word. Work is is now going to be agonizing. Humanity has to force the earth to give up its fruit to support our needs and wants. And so the point is, with the curse on the ground, the world is now characterized by sin and scarcity, right? Hmm. So humans are sinful and nature is stingy. And now human beings are going to work hard for minimal satisfaction. So that's the framework. And within that framework, we all have know, material needs and wants. We'll say demands. All right. Yeah. And the Bible says that our material demands are endless. And sometimes that's because of greed. So Ecclesiastes five ten says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will not be satisfied with his income. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be satisfied in the pursuit of money, you know, when it comes from love of money or greed. Um, so it could be coming from greed, but it doesn't have to be. So Jesus also teaches us to pray. Give us our daily bread, right? The fact that it's daily means that on this side of glory, our need for bread does not end. So we all have these, these ongoing material demands and because we're sinful and nature is stingy and like, here's the key, right? Unless you have some mechanism to temper that human demand, that demand will always outpace supply. And mm. if you don't believe me, just try setting the price for everything, everything in the world to zero dollars. Right? Just imagine everything in the world costs zero dollars, and you watch demand crush supply, and human beings just crush each other over that supply. Is that
0: because our 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 appetite is based, like you kind of mentioned? I mean, is it? Is it because we would just take so much? Yeah, we would just have nothing to stop us from taking for ourselves.
1: And and ultimately, there would be there would be so many left unsatisfied because of nature's scarcity. This curse on the ground means that there's now there's not enough wheat and diamonds for everybody, right? So so now everybody kind of has these material demands, and there needs to be a a mechanism that tempers that the supply with that demand. So now the question is this, right? How do we allocate scarce resources in a way that glorifies God and blesses humanity in this fallen world? And answering that question, what you just pointed out, is what brings us to the study of economics from a Christian perspective. Um,
0: So that's some of the groundwork for for economics generally. Um, So it seems like one of the key important things to um, keep in mind is the nature of the fall. And and like where where you begin, your yeah. starting point is we live in a fallen world and that's something we have to consider when we're looking at how do we how do people get stuff? well exactly
1: yeah well and it's just that the context of how people get stuff is different than it was pre-fall it's not that there wasn't work pre-fall it's not that people didn't have stuff or didn't need stuff pre-fall but now the mechanism by which people get stuff because of the scarcity right because now there's going to be toil uh, and part of this curse on the ground now there needs to be uh, some mechanism in place to temper uh, and to and to weigh the balances between supply and demand
0: yeah i was listening uh this is i hope it's Related. I mean, you can correct me on this if not, but I was listening to, uh, I believe it was Dr. Albert Mohler talking about poverty and and wealth. And actually, uh, one one way it kind of related to that is caging your mind. So just like we just talked about just now, as far as keeping in mind the fall and the, and the entrance of sin into the world, Dr. Mohler was saying that poverty does not have to be explained. Wealth has to be explained because mm. if if we do nothing, if, if if everyone just just stops doing stuff, poverty is the natural default position. Right. If you do nothing, you, you have no food, you have no wealth, you have nothing. So what needs to be explained is the existence of wealth. That has to be explained. Yeah. Um, That's good. So and, – and a lot of times the conversation is a little different, right? A lot of times the conversation is, well – Explain poverty. Mm. Explain poverty. You know that's the challenge for the Christian from the out from the world. The world says, "Explain to us poverty," and we can't explain it because of the fall. But in a way, the, the the real question should be, "Well, we need to explain wealth actually." Yeah, it's like
1: we're surprised
0: by poverty. We're surprised by poverty. We yeah. should actually be surprised by wealth. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I don't. Know, I don't know if that's kind of leaning. No, me that's
1: on. that's good. That's good. So now, th- kind of. Before we go too much further, Mm -hmm. I want to lay down three principles that I think should undergird the rest of our discussion. By the way, this is all still prolegomenon, right? We haven't said anything yet about capitalism. But but here's like three principles I think are important when we talk about this. So the first principle is a logical principle. The logical principle is you cannot judge from the abuse of principle to the abolition of principle.
0: Okay, explain that to me.
1: So... Just because a good thing has been abused doesn't mean we get rid of the good thing, right? So you don't say, well, some teachers are child abusers, so we get rid of teaching. You don't say, well, some charitable giving is with mixed motives, so it doesn't mean we get rid of charity, right? So in other words, I'm not going this morning to endorse everything that falls under the banner of capitalism in the public consciousness, right? Capitalism has been secularized to sound like the economic theory of selfishness. It's about greed. It's about taking advantage of people. And that's partly how socialism gets the rhetorical upper hand in our imaginations. But at the same time, I'm also not going to pretend capitalism hasn't been abused in these ways, right? So my point here is that the abuse of principle doesn't lead to the abolition of principle. Given whatever abuses, capitalism as an economic system is still, I think, a natural outgrowth of scripture, right? It upholds Human rights to act freely as trustees, those who have dominion over whatever property God has put under our stewardship. Okay. So that's the first principle. Okay.
0: Second, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah,
1: this makes sense, right? Second principle is a hermeneutical principle.
0: Oh, there's that, there's that guy again. Mr. Yeah. Hermeneutics. His,
1: hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Exactly. <laughs> but this is like how we interpret scripture, right? Here's a hermeneutical rule that I think. Um, and it's this God's word isn't going to use bad examples to teach good morals. This is actually a crucial point when we come to some later passages. Interesting. So in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, or the parable of the vineyard in Matthew 20, we're going to come back to those, God uses economic illustrations in parables on what the kingdom will be like. And in neither case is the parable's main point economic, right? The economic component is just for illustrative purposes. Yeah. But the point is, there's an the, the point here hermeneutically is that there's an approval of the example used by Jesus when he uses the example. So verse 15 in Matthew 20 is the main point of the parable of the vineyard. The master says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? Mm-hmm. So the master of the vineyard represents God. Now you can't imagine God doing some sinful thing in the illustration and Jesus saying, see, this is how God is, like this sinful man. It's like, may it never be. Yeah. No way, Right. So, when, when Jesus teaches a moral lesson using a parable, the parable's illustration is not the point, but there's an implicit approval of the illustration insofar as it's teaching a moral lesson. So, likewise, from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we can conclude that it's good to engage in free trade to maximize profit, even though that's not the parable's main point. All right. Hmm. Does, that, does
0: that make sense? Yeah, I'm just... Yeah, I'm thinking through it right now. I mean, I can't think of an example right now where where Jesus uh, presented some kind of a bad behavior and attributed it to God in the in the parable. Right, right? He, he's not
1: using an, a bad or immoral example to teach a good or moral lesson. Yeah, about...
0: so like like in the parable of the unforgiving servant, I mean, like the king forgives. Mm-hmm. And so the king is kind of, you know, he's acting good, but then the other servant does not forgive, and he's basically saying, like, don't be that, like, don't be the unforgiving servant right. that gets tossed into into prison because of his lack of mercy. So I think that makes sense, I mean, as, as far as that goes. Yeah, I cool. mean, it seems logical. I just never really thought of it that way before. Yeah, it's really. an important
1: point, because a lot of yeah. times when those parables, you know, Matthew 20, Matthew 25, when when those are brought to bear on these kinds of conversations, the retort often is, well, those parables are not about economics. Why are you making them about economics? Oh, I see. And 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 the point is that here is a hermeneutical principle that's saying, look, you are right; they're not about that. But but nevertheless, God's word is not going to use a negative or immoral illustration to make a positive or moral point. Okay. So there is an implicit uh, there is an implicit uh, approval of the illustration that Jesus is using when he's using it to teach a, a moral point.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So, the third principle is a presuppositional principle, and it's this, right? Any economic system that does not presuppose Christ is just doomed to destruction and ripe for abuse.
0: What do you mean? Right. So,
1: I I mean, you can't, like, capitalism is no silver bullet that's just going to save the day apart from Christ. Mm. No no system will. So, you think, um, you know, Christians were thrilled to get rid of communism in the 20th century we, we exercised communist demons, right? But, but unless we bend the knee to King Jesus, you can have seven more demons worse than the first coming back. Uh, So like capitalism is not going to prevent that. So like, look, the early founders of America would often say, you know, you can basically, you can have minimal government when you have maximum agreement in the culture, right? In other words, you need a common ethic among a commonly ethical populace in order for there to be minimal need for government intrusion. The more regulation you have, the less external, right? The more self-regulation you have, the, mm-hmm. the less external regulation you need. That makes sense. But there's an analogous point to capitalism, right? It's like, just like small government is no silver bullet, capitalism's no silver bullet. It's not going to work anywhere without the moral foundation of Christianity. So, in other words, you know, a lot of times we think we can build economic prosperity on, on capitalism, you know, without Christ— it's like trying to build a house on the sand. Yeah. And, and the reason is, like, you, you can't teach principles of economics and business without morality. You can't teach morality apart from biblical theology. So and, and that doesn't mean—I'm not saying you can't have ethical non-Christians of, by, you know, common grace. Of course you can. I am saying that the transcendental foundations for property rights, like all rights, or for business ethics, like all ethics, are distinctly Christian and rooted in the triune God. So you, you can't have Western prosperity without the moral and philosophical roots that enabled that prosperity. So it, that just means like, look, America needs a gospel as much as any other nation does, right? Political parties need it. Republicans need it. Democrats need it. Socialists need it. Capitalists need it. Mm-hmm. We all need it. So capitalism can be a rich blessing to a society. But if it doesn't have that Christian foundation, we shouldn't be surprised if it devolves into this you know, adulterated self-interest. Hmm. So any benefit that capitalism affords a non-Christian society is just by common grace from biblically borrowed capital. Okay. So, all right. Mm. Those are the three principles. you got the logical principle, hermeneutical principle, presuppositional principle. I haven't said anything yet. All that's just prologue. But I think if we can nail those down, yeah. now we can start to have a productive conversation about capitalism. Well,
0: I, I do agree that that everything has to have Christ at its foundation. Uh, I kind of have two, que- two questions, and you can, you can answer them in any way that you wish. The first is, I mean, you already mentioned, I mean, greediness and, and stinginess and, and self-centeredness. Um, so I guess the question is, does the, does the capitalist system or structure, does that encourage people to be greedy more so than, let's say, another structure? Uh, so a kind of related question is, if, if, if Christ is needed at the core, then isn't it dealer's choice? Like, if we have Christ and socialism, and if we have Christ and capitalism— then maybe it's possible that Christian socialism is better at restraining greed and stuff like that than Christian capitalism. Like, like if, if really what matters is having Christ, then isn't it a dealer's choice mm. kind of thing? That's kind of the question I have for you there.
1: So I would say there, those are two different questions. They're both really uh, good questions. Yeah. Um, I'll answer the second one because it'll be quicker to answer, Okay, and then we'll come back to the greed, all right? So if so, if Christ is all that's needed, isn't it dealer's choice? Kind of, you can have Christ in capitalism or or Christ in socialism. So um, I'm going to say no. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so ca- the first part of my definition of capitalism is that it's a, that economic system by which capital goods are privately owned. Okay, so you back up for a second and think God owns everything. All right. So to say that God owns everything doesn't answer the derivative question of who has dominion over that property on earth, right? Is it individuals or is it society as a whole, right? this kind of comes to your point. It could be, is it, could, it could be capitalist and private ownership or it could be society and communal ownership. And the answer, I think, to that question is found in the eighth commandment in Exodus 20, verse 15, mm-hmm. you shall not steal, right? So just think this through, right? If something belongs to the community, then it belongs to you just like it belongs to me. So if you've got a car in your possession and, hey, that car is just as much mine as it is yours. And when I drive away with that car, could I be accused of stealing? Right. So I think the answer to that is no. Right. So in other words, private property is the presupposition of the eighth commandment. In order to steal something, Mm -hmm. someone has to own something. And now... Of course, that doesn't preclude sharing. You can still share with the Eighth Commandment, but taking from those who are unwilling to share because you want something or think you deserve something—that's condemned, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of examples like that in Scripture that reinforce this notion of private property. You just think of like, you know, Deuteronomy 19 and the warning against moving your neighbor's boundary markers. And you think, you know, Proverbs 28 assumes uh, 19 assumes land ownership. There's just so many, uh, there's too many texts in scripture that reinforce this notion of private property. Okay. So um, that's the f- second part of your so question. So you would say
0: that they are not, they're not dealer's choice, it's not equal. It's not, they're or... not
1: equal, it's not dealer's choice because God, God's word kind of hems us in towards okay. one, I would say. Okay, fair yeah.
0: enough. And so then going back to my first question is, um, doesn't the capitalist system uh, encourage greed selfishness like isn't there a better way to to hinder a person's greed or to restrain man's evil should say
1: yeah so this one is a little bit longer of an explanation but i think we can get there so sure so the bible teaches that people are already greedy rich okay. and poor alike
0: right now uh, hold on a second wait wait yeah <laughs> <laughs> rich, and poor, rich and poor
1: alike right uh-huh. so in other words so act- when
0: i think of greed i think of the monopoly guy exactly right and <laughs> uh, well, a
1: lot of people do well and, and there's uh, yeah it's greed as a sin is not uh in scripture perceived as some kind of unique sin that can that is only uh laid at the doorstep of those who have the power to to fulfill their greedy tendencies right you can have poor people who do not have that wealth or that power to fulfill those greedy tendencies nevertheless be incredibly greedy Um, and you can have very virtuous wealthy people very virtuous poor people very greedy poor people very greedy rich people so the question isn't, does capitalism allow people to be greedy? It was, they are greedy, right? Oh, so the question right. is, does capitalism have checks on greed built in? Right, I, I'm going to reframe it that way. And I think hmm. the answer to that is yes. So I'm going to give two examples. Okay. So one is division of labor and another is supply and demand. So let's all right. division of labor, all right?
0: All right. Here we go.
1: I, this morning... I'm prepping for this episode. I'm doing some research and whatnot. I, I do my research on a computer. I got a nice <coughs> Mac computer. It's mm-hmm. like almost a decade old now, but the thing is still going. It's amazing how they make these things. Well made.
0: It's well made. It's well
1: made, right? <laughs> now, I have no idea how to make a computer. Now, some people do, and it's super impressive. I don't. But the point is I needed to buy a computer. Now, let's pretend for the sake of this illustration. Let's pretend I paid $500 for this computer, all right? I need people who build computers so that I can buy that computer in order to do my work, right? In order for me to be productive. So I might not know how to make computers, but I need, you know, maybe I know how to use a computer to, I don't know, buy a stock or build software or do research or whatever, right? So now let's pretend this computer maker thinks I manage finance as well, doesn't know a thing about investing and hires me to manage her portfolio and let's say her portfolio is you know, sufficiently complex, so I charge her, I don't know, I'm making this up, $5,000 per year for investment management, just for the sake of easy math. And we both get ahead by engaging in trade with one another. right? We both get ahead because of division of labor, and you know, money facilitates the transaction because you know, I don't need 10 computers. I charge $5,000, her computers are $500 each. I don't need 10 computers, and that's what I'd have to buy in order to trade commensurately on perceived value. That's why we have money coming into the picture to facilitate the transaction. But the point is the computer maker and the money manager have to live as if they need each other because they do need each other, right? Mm-hmm. So, so economic advancement forces trade through division of labor and therefore restrains the evil of individuals, right? We can't be as selfish or greedy as we might want to be precisely because the computer maker needs the money manager and vice versa. The farmer needs the distributor and vice versa. The mm. doctor needs the medical device technician and vice versa, right? Mm. So, and look, gospel advancement in the church works in a similar way. Paul can say in First Corinthians 12, the body isn't one member, but many. The foot needs the hand. The hand needs the ear. The ear needs the nose. Same idea here, right? Capitalism has this reputation for being about competition, but at its root, you see, it's about cooperation.
0: Mm. So you would say then that um, if I'm trying to work this out in my mind, like if someone were to be as selfish and greedy as possible, they would be burning so many bridges that no one would, no one would want to talk to them or to engage in trade with them or work with them or, you know, anything like that. And so it would, it would end very badly for them. Exactly. If they were to be purely, as selfish as possible um and so you're saying that because of our need of each other it restrains our selfishness in it, a capitalist context yes okay yes exactly okay. so I can see I mean, that
1: now you think like globally uh-huh. We've got this computer maker. Uh-huh. This computer maker needs raw materials that went into making this computer, and presumably they're coming from different nations, mm-hmm. right? So you take the concept of individuals trading, you have nations trading, and now those nations are incentivized by trade to keep peace with one another and cooperate. Because right? if
0: they don't, the, everything falls apart. Everything falls apart.
1: And you just think for a minute how, like, in a world full of sinful people, greedy people, everybody's just out for themselves. How can you have computers at all? That's a miracle, hmm. right? Hmm. And it's free trade that facilitates that. Now, that's glo- like locally now, the computer maker and the money manager advance each other's lots by freely trading their goods and services. i give you like a biblical example of this. Okay. Comes in uh, 1 Kings 5.
0: Oh, I remember we mentioned this passage last time. <laughs> we didn't really dive into it too much, but...
1: Yeah. So in, in 1 Kings 5, you've got Solomon talking with Hiram, the king of Tyree, right? And we see this example of free trade... And, you know, international division of labor. So uh, if you look at 1 Kings 5, verse 6, uh, 1 Kings 5, 6 says, Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon, this is Solomon talking, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants, such as wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Like, hey, the Sidonians, they are experts at cutting timber. You jump down to uh, verses 10 to 12. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. He's paying him. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom, right? Solomon's got wisdom when he's doing this trade, as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. So that's exactly like what what we're talking about here. Then you have... So that's internationally between uh, between Hiram, king of Tyre, and and Solomon. Mm-hmm. But then you also have domestic division of labor labor in verses thirteen to sixteen. Right, King Solomon drafted uh, forced labor out of all of Israel, and then. Draft numbered 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon. 10,000 a month in shifts. There would be a month in Lebanon, two months at home. Uh, Solomon had 7, 70,000 also burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters in the hill co- uh, country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people. So there's like, here's this division of labor. Um, that, like, okay, that's that's free trade in action. If you want, In order for me to advance, mm. I have to give you something you want right i don't just get stuff because i'm breathing you know yeah and this comes back to your point earlier so like now you could imagine somebody who comes along and says i i refuse to serve others yeah. i refuse to participate and that's like fine you don't, you don't have to but the price you pay is you don't you don't gain any profit you might not even get to eat right if you're if you refuse to work you're going to pay this price this is partly why idleness is so wrong strongly condemned in scripture right yeah. Satan invites Jesus to turn stones into bread. That's not just some random temptation, right? Jesus had been in the desert and was hungry. And you think, like, you think people are good? If you think people are good, try not feeding them for a day or two, right? And you'll see what's really inside. And the point is, you don't get bread by doing nothing. If if you're able-bodied, you need to apply toil. That goes back to Genesis, right? Paul makes the same points in 2 Thessalonians 3. Um, you, you You have to apply toil to eat. So that's... The the first part of the answer, right, is division yeah. of labor.
0: Yeah, but I, I found it interesting as, I, as you were reading through first that passage in First Kings. Yeah. Um, there's a, uh, in verse, uh, so chapter 5, verse uh, verse 6. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. So it's very interesting that, that you know, basically Solomon's like, okay, um, I'm going to pay your servants. You tell me. How much, you know, how much you want to charge me and I will pay that. So there's like an agreement, a, f- a free agreement between the two parties in which the, the cost of labor is established. So that's, you know, kind of that establishing that, that relationship of, of worker and then the employee and the employer mm-hmm. there as far as the wages go. Mm-hmm. So you, you would say that's an example of, of how capitalism functions there.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. All right. So, um, all right. Well, I mean, all that makes sense uh, as far as, like, the need for division of, of labor. And you mentioned supply and demand. So, I think most people listening or most certainly understand the concept or, like, when they hear supply and demand, I mean, they get it. But, like, unpack that a little bit more, please.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so… Let's look at the earlier example. You got yeah. a computer maker, right? Making computers is not going to do this person any good unless somebody buys her computers, right? So let's say, and we said earlier, she charges $500 mm-hmm. for a computer. Now, let's say I come along and I offer $10 for that computer. Now, in capitalism, right? I can't force her to take that $10 for that computer because mm-hmm. that would be theft. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so this is going to start to get some bite, right? Okay. So. What if it was $11? What if it was $12? What if it was $450? What if it was $499, right? Would it be theft if I offered $499 to the computer maker when the computer maker's charging 500? I put the 499 down on the table and I just take the computer and run, right? Now, realistic, not realistic. it's a facetious example. Like really, they probably won't negotiate, but if they don't budge from that $500 mark and I just put the 499 down and grab the computer and run, yeah, that's theft, right? Yeah. Theft is compulsory trading. So I've stolen $1 of perceived value from this computer maker. And the point is, I can't just offer any price I want or any price I think of.
0: I mean, you can offer it.
1: I mean, I can offer it, but I can't force them to take it, right? Uh-huh. I'm constrained by the laws of price of, of supply and demand when it comes to price. So like this question of price takes us a little bit closer to the heart of the issue, right? Mm. We have to ask how should prices be set? And, and capitalism says if I want to profit I'll have to serve others you remember the example of putting everything to a, the price of zero dollars you get greed running rampant prices so prices keep consumer greed in check because scarcity forces us to make choices
0: I mean it, like you mean like Denying ourselves.
1: So I can't. The point is, I can't afford to go buy everything I want. You have a price now on something, which means now I have to make choices between good A, you have to budget. Good B. I have to budget. I have to. I can't just have whatever I want. I can't just. I can't just fulfill my greedy tendencies every right? day. Yeah. Yeah. So so prices keep, in that sense, consumer greed in check. They also keep producer greed in check, right? The computer maker might set a price for a million dollars for her computer. But, and, but, you know, in today's dollars, she's not going to be selling very many computers if she does that. Yeah. So, like, in the long term, markets won't support obscene imbalances between price and value.
0: Okay. Because right? if you if you overcharge, no one's going to buy your product. It restrains greed.
1: Again, uh-huh. you see? So, so now the question is, who sets prices? Should, and this is a key question, right? Should prices be set by supply and demand based on division of labor and profit? Sort of kind of like a bottom-up approach the market determines? Or should prices be set by bureaucratic compulsion? Should they, should they be controlled and planned by the state, which is kind of like a, a top-down approach where pricing constraints are handed down from, from on high? Okay, all right. There's other theories on how to set prices we don't go into here, but those are, the, those are two major schools of thought, right? Okay. So in my example, the computer maker put a price on her labor because she owns her own labor, So just like all the employees she hired on their own labor, she knows what she paid for the raw materials. She knows what she paid for distribution. She knows what she paid for years of education to learn how to make a computer. And she and her investors took risk of investing millions of dollars into a computer making factory. She knows her margins. She knows her market. She knows all this. She concludes $500 per unit. That's a fair price for all that she's invested and all the risks she's taken. And people either voluntarily pay that $500 or they won't. And if they don't, she'll have an excess of supply relative to demand. So then she'll have to voluntarily lower her price. If she has an excess of demand relative to supply, she'll probably increase the price. Mm-hmm. Now let's say, in the middle of all this, I come along and I say, I, I still think it's worth $10. Well, let's make it realistic. I, I think it's worth $400. Not $500, but 400. $400. And you know, hey, in this world where people need computers to get by, it is simply not fair that I should be deprived of one for a lower price. Now, if I come along and say that I actually take it, that would be theft. Now, Hmm. or maybe central planners come along and say, we think it's worth $400. So you, computer maker, accept that price or we're going to shut your business down, right? Hmm. That would be a centrally planned economy. And that's, or maybe not shut your business down. We'll, you know, tax you. you. We'll fine you, right? And that steals $100 of perceived value from the computer maker. Hmm. So ultimately then the computer maker doesn't own her labor anymore. She, she can't set her own price for that labor. She doesn't own her inventory anymore. She can't set her own price for that inventory. See, it undercuts this voluntary contract. And when the government does that, it plays favorites. If the government compels prices upwards or downwards, it benefits one sector of the economy in favor of the other. Yeah. It, the Government becomes a respecter of persons, which is forbidden in God's words from being. That's why we get things like you know so-called crony capitalism, which is really no capitalism at all, it's where you know big banks are... You know, big companies get bailed out, or politicians dole out political favors to people who've contributed to their cause. So, capitalism, in theory, is private gains and private losses. It's not private gains and public losses. But when the public bails out institutions that behave unwisely, that's what you what you get, and that's hmm. highly objectionable. That's not capitalism.
0: So, okay, interesting. So you would say, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, with crony capitalism, the idea that so recently. Well, 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 not recently now, but I guess after the market crash, yeah. who did uh, was it Chevrolet? That was uh, one other car company. no
1: oh, some of the a handful of the automakers. They,
0: they did get bailed out by the government. Mm-hmm. So, but it's interesting. Like the idea that something is too big to fail right. enters our minds and says, and so and so the government says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to inject money mm. into this company to keep it alive, but they won't do that for like the Mon Pop business right down the street in podunk you know random place united states exactly right because they don't care about that place of business because it's not big enough for them to care about so they are playing it's interesting they're playing favorites it's like yeah and 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 so you would say that that would be an abuse
1: i would yeah of
0: capitalism so
1: now, look, anytime government tries to engineer an economy yeah. or engineer prices, it's like it's like trying to build Babel, right? Hmm. Like, you, you think you know enough. You think you're smart enough to set the price of some good or service, you know, exactly what it ought to be. So there's an economist named uh, Friedrich Hayek, who mm-hmm. was an Austrian economist, called this the pretense of knowledge, right? Bureaucrats may pretend to know how to pull levers for price controls, but they really they, – they don't know. Like – like thinking we don't need each other, thinking an economy can be engineered from on high. He, Hayek called that a fatal conceit. So by contrast, godly humility says, you know, I don't necessarily know what the prices ought to be, so they need to be calibrated by supply and demand. And that's why, you know, if you ask a real estate agent, hey, what's the value of your home? They'll give you a range, but at the end of the day, they'll say your home is worth whatever a buyer is willing to pay.
0: That's true. That is entirely true, yeah. I mean, as a part-time real estate agent myself, (laughs) I know you are as well. Right, right. I mean, it's true. I mean, no one, because if someone comes up to you and says, what is my house worth? And the answer is, it depends.
1: You can get a range. Like You can get kind of like, you know, based on uh, competition and based on comps and, you know, all these other different metrics that you can use to get some kind of a range for what the prices ought to be. You can set them there. But then ultimately, the market is going to calibrate that yeah right so and, and if you try to set your house just obscenely more expensive than the market will support you see it checks greed in that yeah. sense
0: and there's i mean theoretically a person could come along and see your house and it is the dream house and let's say you overpriced it and that person actually says you know what it's worth it because this house is the perfect house that i've always wanted and i i can't see myself in any other house and then they say we take your we take your price, and you're like, wow, man, I didn't really expect a a person to bite on that high value I set in my house, but they did, um, and that could possibly happen, right? Or, you know, you set the price too high, and no one is interested.
1: Yeah, I mean the point is this humility, right? We it's, yeah. when it comes to price controls or wage control, you know who who knows what these things ought to be set at, right? Okay. The, the government does not know, yeah. and, and yet when when the government comes in to impose kind of wage or price controls, um, you know that that can introduce. Um, confusion and and um, it can mess with that equilibrium yeah. within the market now it's well, you know markets are never perfectly efficient I'm not I'm not saying that yeah um, but I am saying that they're generally efficient there's kind of a calibration that that happens there
0: well I was gonna so now all right trying to play from the other side here um, I mean I'm seeing what you're saying so far but to be fair Let's say as fair as possible to the socialist or to the you know the government interve- the government run economy. Uh, I guess I could see them saying that yeah that's all well and good, but uh, you know they're not trying to control prices in order to just be in charge of the economy. The reason why they get involved is they see injustice hmm. being done, and they want to um, fix it. They want to, they want to, they want to address that injustice. Um, cause I think at the heart of it, like, you know, we all understand, we all, I guess we all want people to be nice to each other and to be generous with each other. And, and if we see a, if we see, let's say a migrant worker, uh, who doesn't really know the language being, uh, in a, in a way, you know, from our perspective, they're being abused, you know, they're getting paid a dollar an hour to do this work. Um, you know, or else maybe they'll get. You know, they're afraid that they're going to get. Uh, you know, in trouble if they don't just say yes to the, uh, to the company that's hiring them, right? So they in, in a way they're being taken advantage of, right? And so the government, or you know, wants to come in and say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna prevent that injustice from happening. So it's kind of like a twofold aspect here. Like, a, they want to promote generosity. They want people to be generous with their wealth. And they see that people are not being generous with their wealth or they're not being generous enough with their wealth. And so they want to like, okay, we're going to fix that problem. And then number two, people are being abusive and we're going to fix that problem too. Like I think that might be the motivation behind what they're – like let's say that's the motivation.
1: I'm sure it's the motivation.
0: So so now – all right. So what's the, <laughs> what's the response? So maybe
1: yeah. – well, well, good motivations don't always lead to good outcomes. In fact, okay. they often don't with the kinds of tactics that we're talking about here, right? So, so in other words, all right. Well, let's let's back up and see where there's some where we can give some give. Unless okay, you address this. those
0: questions later, then.
1: Well, no, no, no. Let, let's let's well, here here we can give some on this now, right? Okay. So like, I I don't want to give the impression, and we're going to turn to a couple of passages in scripture that are pertinent to this in, in just a minute, but I don't want to give the impression here that property rights are are absolute. They're not absolute, right? Government still has a God given right to tax. property owners are to leave the edges of their fields for the poor to glean, right? So, and and, and moreover, you you know, the market isn't totally free or autonomous. So this is one of the things that separates a Christian position from, say, you know, certain licentious strands of libertarianism you know Mm -hmm. so a a christian would say only legitimate goods and services can be offered in the market so for example you know you you can't like
0: selling people exactly
1: you can't you can't sell people on the market why not well because god says so it's not a legitimate good or service and that for the christian settles the issue so so it's you don't want to give the impression that you take this and kind of extrapolate to extremes that's because the bible has has as parameters that hem us in from going that direction too. And look, as, as far as, you know, kind of the, the immigration workers, in the example you gave a moment ago, it doesn't have to be immigration workers. It could be any worker. Christians should be known as those who pay the healthiest wages. So i give an example. You know, 1 Timothy 5, 7, Timothy cites Deuteronomy 25, 4. It says you're not to muzzle the ox while it treads out grain. And in the context there, Paul's saying the elders in the church are worthy of double honor, you know, frankly, double pay. But it's not as if the correlation to be drawn from Deuteronomy is, is oxen to clergy, yeah. right? The, the point is, whenever somebody works for you, don't muzzle them. Don't make their lives hard. Make them easy. Make it easy to do the work. Make it joyful. Make it efficient. Pay mm-hmm. them well, especially yeah. if they're skillful in their work, right? Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says uh, that a man skillful in his work will stand before kings. So if you've got a skilled employee and you pay him like a joker, he's going to leave you to find a king going to pay him right this so this is anecdotal Mm -hmm. but the wealthiest people i've ever known personally have had the loosest grip on money they're not they're not trying to make money they're trying to build cool stuff that helps others that's the key right wealth is created through investment through risk through building something cool to help other people it's not built through hoarding so if you hide your cash under a mattress if you stash away you know picture Gollum with the ring of power. You know your money never grows. Jeez. Or is
0: it like Scrooge McDuck? Have you ever I'm seen Scrooge that?
1: McDuck swimming in his swimming? In his I always gold used to watch pools. the show yeah. as a
0: kid. Like he would die, he would have this whole vault of, of of money and he would just dive into it. Yeah. Like
1: but you know, you think think back to the parable of the talents, which we're going to come back to in just a second here. But the wicked servant hid the talent and got no return. And Jesus said, you know, he could have at least put it in the bank and gotten some interest. Huh. So
0: yeah. Interesting. All right. So. All right. I guess that kind of answers my question, I suppose. But then, I mean, all right. Well, I think you already set the answer as far as what the what the biblical basis of well, at least some of the biblical basis for it. But I mean, is there is there more that we can glean from Scripture as far as oh yeah as far as uh, the importance or the, or the the basis for capitalism? I mean, um, you mentioned earlier those uh, those parables. Uh, can you maybe unpack that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, totally. So we'll start with the parable of the talents, uh, Matthew twenty five fourteen to 30. Um, you know, God gives talents and, and you, know, our, you know, already the, the parable is, is about, you know, maximizing use of spiritual abilities for God's glory. The point isn't economic. It's just it, it, there's an assumed economic ethic in the story or else, you know, it doesn't make any sense as we saw earlier. But the assumed economic ethic is it's good to engage in free trade and maximize profit. Right. Um,
0: and, and this is regarding the talent that was buried. Well, not, not the town that was buried.
1: Even the ones that were not buried, exactly, they went and multiplied their their They lots. went
0: and multiplied what was given to them they made as a, a steward, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And they yep, exactly. That was the. This is this kind of goes to your point earlier about hermeneutics, like yes. So this parable is not about money per se. Like the, the whole point of the parable is about not necessarily just economics.
1: Right, right. It's about max, God gives us spiritual abilities. Right, we want to go maximize those for God's glory in the world. We want to spread the gospel, right, and 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 get a return on God's investment in us. He gives us that, you know, whatever those whatever those gifts are that He's given us, and God expects us to use those for His glory. Okay, yeah, that's the point. But but it's couched in economic language, and that you know, and and that can be used likewise. So also, and and here's a really good example, I think, uh, parable of the vineyard in Matthew twenty one to sixteen.
0: Matthew twenty, okay.
1: So you get these workers. Who worked for different lengths of time and yet at the end of the day they're paid the same amount and the, the they all voluntarily contract for a certain amount whatever that amount is and and the point comes in verse 15 the master says you know because they're they're saying oh it's not fair we worked for longer we worked harder and yet you pay me the same amount in verse 15 is it not lawful for me to do with mine own what I will the answer is yes it's lawful hmm. so so free trade in pursuit of profit is faithfulness and we, we we have the right to do with our own what we would like i can work or not work i can offer x dollars for the work or offer y dollars for the work mm-hmm. and like nowadays we look at this parable and our ears perk up with just suspicion right kind of raise an eyebrow because we probably feel it's unfair like just put yourself in the place of the worker who's been out there the longest you know, you've been out there all day you're under the scorching sun I've worked the longest and I I should get paid more. I've worked the hardest. But now let's move away from the illustration. You start to see the point, right? The people who grumble against the master are really saying unfair. I've worked hard for this salvation.
0: Because the passage is about salvation.
1: The Pharisees, you you know, they feel like they've worked hard in God's kingdom, like generation after generation, you know, scrupulous obedience to the law. Mm -hmm. And then God lets people, you know sinners and prostitutes and and publicans and gentiles into the kingdom and and the human heart cries out unfair unfair i've worked hard for the salvation christ says it was never yours to begin with oh, so okay. so does god only give salvation to those who work the hardest no that's no. not how the gospel works no now do we really want to challenge the sovereignty of God and his ownership over this salvation? Do we want to try to take away his right to do with his own what he sees fit? So if no, then likewise may we do with our property what God gives us to do as stewards. So, so
0: you would say, well, would it be fair to say then that even though the passage of this parable of the, of the vineyard workers is... Primary, primary and the point of it is talking about salvation yes you would say some of the principles that Jesus is is unpacking here is that the master can do with his stuff his property his money whatever he pleases and so in this example he made a contract with the first worker saying if you work for me I will pay you I will pay you a day's wages and I guess that's analogous to salvation or or the inheritance or whatever the case may be. But then he then goes later on at the end of the day, or maybe there's only a few hours left and he goes to a worker and says, Hey, or to a person says, Hey, if you work for me for these next couple hours, I will pay you a day's wages. Right. And so the first person had no problem making that, making that initial contract with the, with the vineyard owner. But when he sees the vineyard owner, making a more generous contract with another worker that sense of envy and resentment seems like it sets in
1: right so like at a human to human level yeah if we cry unfair the question is how then would we deal with god right god god's look god's telling us these these economic parables he's illustrating his own ownership over everything mm-hmm. right now, are we going to go before God and say, God, you know, you you think you own the terms of salvation, you, you but right is right, and I, I think we should all be saved. I think salvation should be on these other terms, right? Mm. So what's his response going to be, right? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Salvation belongs to him. So to the extent that anything belongs to us, that we have dominion over it, that we have stewardship over it, denying us that God-given dominion is rooted in the same spiritual blindness that would look at god and say unfair that's yeah. why this is so that's why this stuff is so dangerous that's why private property is so important that's okay. why this stuff is so dangerous
0: right? all right well then i guess kind of kind of flowing from that i mean someone might say well yeah okay but you know in the parable god is the is the vineyard owner and you know he's without sin he's sinless so he can you know he you know he's not gonna make these kinds of errors and mistakes but you know you know humans are sinful so so, I mean, shouldn't there be, I mean, some rules, some regulations? Can, I mean, it, you know, uh, are we going to have unbridled capitalism? I mean, shouldn't there, shouldn't there be something?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, we're, we already said it a couple of minutes ago that, you know, property rights are not absolute. And we gave a couple of examples of that. Okay. Um, and, but, but the question is, to the extent to which property rights are not absolute or where those are, those are controlled for, the boundaries are set in place by God's word on those property rights as okay. opposed to whatever i as a fallen human think you know wherever i personally think your property rights end right it's not me that gets to decide that it's god's word that gets to decide okay so the where standard we have to,
0: to use is still god's scripture, word scripture exactly okay. all right fair enough
1: and you don't you also i mean look we've talked through some practical implications of this we don't want any of today's discussion to make us you know drowsy towards the dangers of materialism or greed like those are real and present dangers, like Matthew six nineteen to twenty one. You know, store up uh, treasure where where moth and rust do not corrode, and thieves do not break in and steal. Like that, that looms large here, right? We want to make sure that what's most important to us is is God. Is not, it's not the property. It's not the wealth. It's not the stuff. Okay. Right. That's that's key.
0: Well, okay. Let's say that someone is convinced, or say, all right, well, sh- all right, sure. I, you know, I, I'd say. Capitalism seems to be the more biblical position or at least a, a, a Christian form of capitalism. I mean, are there some pitfalls that we should avoid? I mean, what are some of the things that Christians should be concerned about as they think about this topic as we As we consider this.
1: Yeah, so here's here's one um, I'll, yeah, I'll give you two. So the first one one that comes to mind. Yes yeah, I've heard some people say like I'm not a socialist. I'm not a capitalist. I'm a Christian, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> That's just unhelpful, right? It's like the Word of God has nothing to say about economics. Like, We're liable for thinking that way, partly because economics is so rarely preached on, to be honest with you. like When it comes to issues facing society, we're quick to preach on marriage or sanctity of life. We're much slower to preach on You don't on touch on, on my money. You don't <laughs> talk
0: about my money. Right.
1: Well, so, you know, um, <laughs> look, the, the Bible is not ah-economic, right? One of its key premises is that God is the sovereign owner of all things, and he expects his... His trustees to treat property in particular ways. So that's that's one thing. Another thing to watch out for is is language about rights. Mm-hmm. um it, It's kind of derivative, but it but it impinges on the same topics we've been talking about. Like so, we, we like to talk about rights. We'll slap that word rights on anything. We'll slap it on anything. Like presidential candidate uh, Beto O'Rourke, you know, recently claimed that living close to work is a right. He says this in a campaign hmm. speech. You some might hear that be like living close to work is a right, like, you might think that that's, I don't know, some of you might think that's right, some of you might think that's silly, but honestly, that thinking is not essentially different than, like, a right to healthcare, a right to education, like, some people, so, look, it's it's worth differentiating negative rights and so-called positive rights, or probably better, you know, Doug Wilson calls these free rights versus funded rights, Mm -hmm. so, Negative rights or free rights are rights given by God and defended by government. You have right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right to free speech, free assembly, bearing arms. Think constitutional rights, okay? And by itself, nothing on this list costs anyone anything, right? Positive rights, on the other hand, are funded rights, cost someone something, so a right to healthcare, a right to housing, a right to education. Like once you say someone has a right to K through twelve education, there's no logical break that's keeping that right from extending to college. Hmm. It's partly why you know Bernie Sanders' platform, you know, free college, is so successful because it fits nicely within this framework of assumptions that's already been built up over the last hundred years. You take the same logic and extend it, and it goes, you know, free, you know, free college, government mm-hmm. subsidized college. But but when claiming a funded right, the question to ask is from whom? Right. So if I say I have a Who right,
0: for it. exactly. If I say
1: I have a right to housing, the question is, from whom am I entitled to the labor of a contractor to build me a house? Right. Hmm. We don't have the right to someone else's labor. Like thinking otherwise, that's that's fertile soil for slavery. Right. Hmm. With with funded rights, in all cases, the possessor the possessor of the rights is not the one to foot the bill, except in some you know fractional derivative sense. The rights quote unquote are funded by society as a whole and because not everyone is wildly excited about volunteering their hard-earned money to the coffers of uncle sam the money needs to be extracted forcibly through taxation and that undercuts a lot of the premises we've touched on today so in terms of pitfalls to avoid i would say just be very careful about the language of rights and be mindful of how you use it and be mindful of that question of funded is this a funded right is this a, is this a free right like free rights Generally good funded rights. Be careful because yeah. you don't want to undercut some of these tenants We've been talking through Well, today. it seems
0: like that rights like the idea of a right You know when I think of the term it's like when I say I have a right to this thing Whatever this gizmo widget or whatever. It's basically saying if I don't have that thing Society or somebody should do something about it. So I mean and I see that as far as like, if I have the right to life, that means on an, on you know, in the default position, if someone takes my life, society should respond, or society should protect, or you know me, and ensure that I don't lose my life in some sense or, or fashion. And of course, not absolute because if I, you know, if I if I engage in a murderer's rampage, or you know, terrorist attack, or assassination attempt, you know, I am I am forfeiting my right to life in that regard. Or liberty, right? If you get arrested for a crime, you no longer have liberty. If you get condemned, you know, you're guilty, right? So that, light, that right to liberty is forfeit. Um, but that's kind of like the negative rights, you know, the, the, the God-given rights. It doesn't cost anybody anything for you to have your life. Like you live, and then as long as everyone leaves you alone and allows you to live, you're fine. It's when someone comes in there and takes something, takes your life, that, that the society should respond. But then you talk about the funded rights where, where I have a right to a car. And now you're saying, well, basically, if I don't have the car, society should do something about it. Because like, it's a violation of my rights if I don't have that car, right? So that would be completely other end of the spectrum now someone has to work. Someone has to give me that. In a way, something has to be given to me. I mean, if it's a right that I and I don't have this thing, it needs to be given to me.
1: Yeah. Is it grace or is it owed? I mean, look. I think.
0: Yeah.
1: I'll, I I'll I know we're getting low on time, and I'll wrap up. No, with this. Fine. But like, like the answer here, like just practical implications. Yeah, that's right? what I was gonna get. Yeah. Like the, at answer, the end of the day, it does it matter. At the end of the day, the, the answer is not ultimately political or economic. Like capitalism no system can bring change to any society unless hearts are changed okay so the answer is still really evangelize evangelize like that's the, like Christ alone can set man free so it, it look it all starts in the prayer closet but it doesn't end in the prayer closet right it advances to you know you build mediating structures you build families you build churches and you, you teach these structures, you teach order, you teach self-governance, mm-hmm. right? You, again, you, you need that in order for, for things like capitalism and, and um, you know, a representative republic in a in, you know, democratic context to, to thrive. You mm-hmm. need self-governance. So uh, there's, a, there's a quote I found uh, from J. Gresham Machen. He has this article, uh, Christianity and Culture. Uh, so I'm going to quote here, mm-hmm. just really, really stirring words. Um, the field of Christianity is the world. The Christian can't be satisfied as long as any human activity is either opposed to Christianity or out of all connection with Christianity. Christianity must pervade not merely all nations, but all of human thought. The Christian, therefore, cannot be indifferent to any branch of earnest endeavor. The kingdom must be advanced not merely extensively, but also intensively. The church must seek to conquer not merely every man for Christ, but the whole of man. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed in only winning a straggler here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of a nation or the world to be controlled by ideas which by the resistless force of logic prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion." Under such circumstances, what God desires us to do is destroy the obstacle at its root. What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. The church has no right to be so absorbed in helping the Christian, that she, the individual, that she forgets the world. Is it not far easier to be an earnest Christian if you confine your attention to the Bible and and do not risk being led astray by the thought of the world? We answer, of course it is easier, just as it is easier to be a good soldier in a comfortable winter quarters than it is to be on the field of battle. You save your own soul, but the Lord's enemies remain in possession of the field. Hmm. What, what Machen is getting at there is go out and evangelize and then know that the implications of that evangelism, the transformation, the reformation that takes place It it begins by sharing by gospel transformation internally, but it does not end there. It then goes out to uproot some of these some of these uh, structures of thought that that hold minds captive in the common public consciousness and imagination. And so all the, I mean, this kind of reinforces the third, uh, the, the third, uh, point, the, the pr- third principle that I offered it basically, you know, any, any economic system that does not suppose, suppose Christ is, is doomed from the start, hmm. right? At the end of the day, capitalism is no silver bullet. We need Christ evangelize, and then recognize that the implications of that spill over into how we live all of life. And hmm. economics is one important aspect of where that spillover begins to glorify God.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Uh, at the end of the day, we have to be students of God's Word and to uh, base our decisions and our laws even on what God has said, this is good, this is not good uh, kind of thing there. So, well, I appreciate you doing all the research you've done, Dylan, on this topic of capitalism, and I, I hope that uh, those of you listening have been blessed by it. I'm sure it's raised a lot more questions. Uh, and if you have any questions, uh, please uh, don't hesitate to, to email us at two guys in a bible podcast at gmail dot com. That's the the word two uh, spelled out, or the number two. You could, either one would work as well. Or if you go to our website. Uh, org. That's the number two, org. You can submit questions there. And please don't forget to uh, submit a review or a thumbs up or any kind of uh, you know uh, feedback uh, on iTunes or any other platform that you guys are using. Uh, we definitely want more of that. The more feedback that we get, um, you know, the more those search engines uh, help us out and we can get our message out to uh, more people. So... Again, we thank you for joining us, and uh, until next time, God bless. God bless.